This evening we're going to discuss the topic of raising support. But before we do, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we ask for your help and your grace, wisdom, to understand what we don't understand, to know what we don't know, to love what comes from your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts. I pray that we be full and complete Christians. I pray that we would be Christians who love the Bible, who hate sin. Make us righteous, make us pure, make us godly. Father, help us to have wisdom as we study tonight the practical matters of how to be sent out, how to raise support. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, theological knowledge is not enough. We have been studying over the last two months or so the doctrine of missions, the doctrine of the local church, the doctrine of the Great Commission. And if you've been following us that whole time, then you will know that we have studied it under three headings. First, the definition, what is missions? And then secondly, the motivations. When we talked about the definition, we discussed very clearly that missions is planting churches. Churches that will reproduce with just the believers and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And then with the motivations, we discussed eight different categories of theology. So we really did under motivation the entire Bible designed and examined, uh, examined from different perspectives to show how the great doctrines of the Bible are actually motivations to be involved in missions. Now we're in the third part, the method. How? How should we be missionaries? We began last week by talking about, well, if you want to be a missionary, you need to, first of all, be prepared. So we talked about five ways to be prepared last week. This week, we want to talk about raising support. Next week, we'll also be talking about money in missions because it's a big topic. So tonight, let's discuss raising support. And I've already mentioned that theological knowledge is not enough. That, that would be under this second heading, motivation. We need to have that. We need to master theology. We need to know the gospel and love the Bible. But that's insufficient by itself. Because the Great Commission is truly the greatest task ever given to man because it requires a melding together of theology, personal sacrifice, and the most down-to-earth practical labor that man can do. It requires a man to be a theologian, and it requires at the same time a man be a saint, and at the same time the man be very much someone who's alive on the world. He's going to know how how to have to buy cars and fix problems with electricity, how to talk to people in the government, how to get paperwork done. So, how can the nations of the world call on him in whom they have not believed? How can sheep believe without hearing? How can they hear unless someone preaches? How can they preach unless they are sent? That was the logic that Paul the Apostle used in Romans 10. 
verses 14 to 17. And now I want to ask you that question. How can they be sent? S-E-N-T, sent. The act of sending is a labor that is so massive, so worldwide in its scope that it is truly unique in the world's religions. Just imagine, have you ever heard of an Islamic missions movement? Have you ever heard of a Buddhist missions movement? Hindu missions movement? The atheists might fill up a lecture hall and give a lecture, but they don't do any missions movements. What what atheist has ever moved to China and learned a language just to help the Chinese people understand the wisdom of atheism? It doesn't happen. You see, there is nothing in the world's religions that will parallel the missionary impulse. That is, Christianity stands unique, and I'll even go further and say Christianity stands apart from Catholicism. We are Reformed Christians. We believe that you cannot be a Christian unless you believe the Bible alone and faith alone and Christ alone and grace alone and to God alone be glory. The Catholic Church denies each of those. Though they have sent out a number of missionaries, it is nothing like The wave of missionaries that the Christian church has sent out. Hundreds and thousands of them. As the book of Acts says, turning the world upside down. So, if a man meets the qualifications that we discussed last week, right here in the preparation, those five. Can you remember them? Gifted. Compassionate. Bible-loving. Diligent. What was the fifth one? in the notes humble if the church if a man meets those requirements the church has an obligation to support him the christian church has a scarcity of men like this but they also have the scarcity of their money we only have so much money so now when you've got two things that are not very common you don't have very many men who want to go to the mission field and you don't have very much money to give to those few men you'd better be very careful because if you give it to the wrong man you're going to be wasting the very little money you have We're going to have to be very, very carefully. So practically speaking, how should missionaries find a salary? Missionaries cannot be sent unless they are supported. That's the whole theme tonight. Missionaries cannot be sent unless they are supported. So how should we raise support? High ideals without practical application will not help you as a missionary. So let me give you tonight four biblical principles regarding missionary support. And then three reasons that our world is very complex. And then we'll close with five practical ways to raise support. Let's start with number number one, biblical principles. What does the Bible say about missionary support? Well, here's the problem. Years ago, I read a book on Three views or four views of church government. And the one was the Baptist. The one was the Presbyterian. The one was the Anglican form of church government. And the Anglican said at the beginning of his chapter on Anglican church government, he said, well, being an Anglican is very easy. The Bible doesn't talk about church government. So we just have to look out and decide which one makes more sense. Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican. Close your Bibles. You can't use your Bible. 
So what do we do when, when we have important issues and the Bible doesn't talk about it? Well, the Bible does talk about money and missions. So let me give you four biblical principles about it. Even though we don't have all the answers to all the questions, we do have general rules. And as a general rule, when the passage is unclear or when a question is not dealt with fully, then we return to the points that are clear. So I'm going to give you tonight four very clear points. Number one, missionaries ought to be supported by the church that sends them out. Acts 13 verse 3. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them. Underline those words. They sent them. The first they is the local church. Who's the them? Paul and Barnabas. The church sends Paul and Barnabas. Now let's look at some comments there. The Antioch church sent out the first missionaries, and we can assume that the sending meant financial support because, number one, the early church dedicated all of her wealth to to her Lord. And number two, because in other places when we see Christians having great difficulty, the early church helped them, like in Acts chapter 11, verse 29, the Gentile churches took up an offering and gave it to the Jewish churches. And that's going to happen again in 2 Corinthians chapter Eight, chapters 8, 9, and 10. So the church is giving their money. But we do know that sending is sufficient for the preacher to get the message to the heathen. So if the sending is enough to get the message to the heathen, and the local church is responsible for the sending, then the local church has to be responsible for getting the message to the heathen. That might mean airfare or vehicles, salary, government documents. Paul told Titus not only to send Artemis and Tychicus, but he told them to watch that they lack nothing. That's Titus 3, verses 13 and 14. And then in verse 14, amazingly, he not only says, Paul says to Titus, send Artemis and Tychicus And make sure that they don't lack anything when they go on their journey. And then, very next verse at the end of the book of Titus. Then go teach all the Christians in the church to do the same kind of good works. What kind of good works? Go find men and send them by giving them all the money that they need to get their job done. Sending must mean financial support. Number two. Christian missionary ministers should be supported by those that they evangelize. Look at that long passage that I included in the notes. Do you see it? 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. Follow through that passage and let me point out a few things. Verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Does the law also not say these things? It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. The plowman not to plow in hope, the thresher to thresh in hope. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right. What does that mean? Okay, you should be giving your pastor's money. How much more should you be giving the money to the missionaries, Paul says to the church he planted? He writes to the Corinthians, if you've got to give the money to your pastor, how much more should you give to the missionary who started your church? But then he hurries on to say, but I'm not taking it from you and I'm not asking it from you. I'm not trying to get anything from you. Look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? Verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from what? Verse 14. Those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. It would be better for me to die than that I chase after money. So Paul says, I'm not writing this to you so you'll give me an offering. But I'm telling you up front, you should have been giving your offerings to the missionary. And you should have been going also and giving your offerings to the pastor. But Paul says, I put that right aside. Look at 1 Timothy 5. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now that phrase, double honor, do you see that in the passage, the first line? That word double honor probably means money. The ones who work hard should get more money, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Verse 18 For the scripture says, you will not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of what? So Christians should support their pastors, but even this right, Paul the apostle laid aside. Number three, Paul did what? What did Paul do? He worked hard to support himself. There's a number of verses on this. I put them on the in the notes. Acts 18, verse 3. What job did Paul have? What is it? How many verses in the Bible say that? Just one. Let's see it. Acts 18, verse 3. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. Acts 18, 3 is the only reference to tent making. But look at these other verses. The next one, Acts 20. You yourselves, that's the Ephesian church. You yourselves, he stayed in Ephesus for three years. Know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul said, I worked with my hands. And what was his job? Tent maker. I work with my hands. And then I even supplied for my missionary teammates. Yeah, but Paul, you're the big hero. You're the captain. That's fine. I give to them. 1 Corinthians 4.12. And we toil, working with our own hands. 2 Corinthians 12. Verse 13. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not become a burden to you. That means he didn't ask them for money. And then what does he say? Forgive me this wrong. 
Paul wants to be forgiven because he didn't take money from the Corinthians. Why, why, why would he call that a wrong? What wrong did he do to the Corinthians by not taking money from them? Did he force them to feel the uh, weight and pain of missions? Right. He did not make the Corinthian believers feel the weight of standing on their own feet and being men and doing the work of God like all Christians have done before them. And Paul said, that was wrong of me. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, there in your notes. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. 2 Thessalonians 3 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to you. Now here's the interesting thing. These references all take place. All of the references that I just read to you all take place within seven years. That tells me that there's a pattern. If he did it for seven years, do you think he did it for 10 and 12 There seems to be a pattern here. Paul does not want to put any burden on them. He wants to make the gospel as free as possible. Number four, Paul accepted gifts from what? Second Corinthians 11, nine, when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my Need. But what did he do when he was there? Look back, look up above, just a few lines up at 1 Corinthians 4.12. Same page, just up about five references. While Paul was there with them, he writes, and we toil, working with our own hands. Paul is laboring very hard while he's with the Corinthians. But then jump down to the verse we just read, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 9. When I was present with you and was in need. Oh, when Paul was with the Corinthians, what was he doing? Working as a tent maker. But it didn't pay the bills. So he was in need. He's with the Corinthians. He's trying to work, but the market is slow. They're not buying the tents. So he's in need, but he doesn't tell the Corinthians. Instead, the Philippians hear about it and they send him money. That's what's written in 2 Corinthians eleven nine. Look at this remarkable passage in Philippians 4. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. What did the church at Philippi do that no other church did? They gave money to Paul. How often? Verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than what? Once. How many many weeks was he in Thessalonica? Acts 17, verse 2. Three Saturdays. So if he came in on a Sunday and he left on a Friday, he's there for about a little over a month. And they sent a gift to him two times during that? Paul's not even there very much. And they send a gift to him. Keep going in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which, is, which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full. 
and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. He's writing this from prison, you remember. I am amply supplied while I'm sitting in prison. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Oh, so they sent again. That's the third gift. They sent twice to him in Acts chapter 17. This is Acts 28 when he's writing these words. And they sent another gift to him from Epaphroditus. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To whom is the promise made that God will supply all their needs? Okay, but what was the church doing? How's that application for Christians today? To whom does God promise by application today, I will supply all of your needs if you are like the Philippians in this way? Exactly. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, we realize the people from Philippi were very poor. These people are poor. They don't have a lot of extra money. And what are they doing? They're saying, we are going to sacrifice our money. We're going to give two times in the same month to the Apostle Paul. Then again, we find out he's in prison. Send him. Yeah, but it's in Rome. I don't care. Yeah, but it's far away. Send him. Wait, it's, it's hundreds of kilometers. Send Epaphroditus. There's no taxi and there's no bus and there's no train. Send him. And Paul writes back, I want you to know, Epaphroditus, take this letter back to them. God will meet all of their needs. Why? They were faithful to support missionaries. And God is always faithful to supply the needs of those who care about missions. Now, Paul does not mention any other gifts from any other churches. Outside of what the Philippians and perhaps their fellow believers added to it. But the gifts that were given from all of those churches, the gifts that were given were from all the churches he had planted, not from his sending church. We never read once in the Bible that the sending church gave him money. Maybe they did because it says they did what? Sent him. And I already discussed earlier. How can you send someone If you don't supply everything they need, I give you several verses. Romans 10, verse 15, and Titus 3, verses 13 and 14, when Titus was supposed to send Artemis and Tychicus, and when he sends them, he must supply everything they need. So the idea of sending implies what? Money. But there's no record that the church at Antioch, which was Paul's sending church, gave him money. Maybe they did. But what we do have is the missionary churches he started gave him money. So apparently living from the gifts of those who sent him or those whom he evangelized was not his pattern because he still needed to work to pay it off. So what conclusions can we draw from these four principles? I've given you four principles. What conclusions can we draw? Here's two of them in your notes there. First, Churches ought to take the initiative to make sure that their missionaries lack nothing. When we send out a missionary, we should make sure he has all he needs. Number two. Second, laziness and a grasping spirit ought never to come near missionaries who want to follow Paul's example. Laziness and a grasping spirit is evil. 
It grieves the Spirit of God. It is unchristian. Missionaries are sometimes called moochinaries. Mooch means to take any good thing you can. So if you come over to someone's house, oh, can I have that? Oh, can I have that? Mooching. Missionaries ought never to be moochinaries. They should be eager to work. Never asking. Always pouring out more. Praying to God and pleading. So, we see first of all from the biblical principles that we should be working hard and that the church should send. But it gets more complicated in the modern day. Let me give you three complications that make it a little more tricky. Number one, the tools and the costs are far greater than they were in Paul's day. Vehicles are much more expensive. Airfare, government documents, health care. Someone says, well, I don't have health care. So why does a missionary have to have health care? Answer, they won't let you into your country unless I show them three months bank statement and unless I show them that I have health care. I have no choice but have health care. Because your government won't let me come here without it. And also without government documents, which can be very expensive. Education, housing, in fact. I have to prove that I can meet all of these financial obligations so that in no way will I be a burden on South African society or they won't give me a visa. And it's even more difficult to get visas for Zimbabwe. So now let's say you live in Brazil and the Lord calls you to work with the Ndebele people. Before you can get to the Ndebele people, you have to have airfare, which is very expensive. You're going to have to have health care, government documents. You're going to have to prove that you have housing and you have to prove papers that show you're educating your children. You have to prove that you're not going to take a job from anyone there. And if you want to move around in a country where you don't even know who people are or where they're at or where you're going to live, you should probably come with a vehicle. Unless you are a 21-year-old single man who's not afraid of sleeping in the bush. But if you're going to go with a wife and two little girls, you're going to need to have those things if you're moving around the world to China or to Korea or from Australia to the Philippines. So these kinds of things were not dealt with with the Apostle Paul. Most of these expensive items are required by the governments of the world. Now, I recognize there are many different backgrounds that can be listening to this. Because someone might say, look, I am a Zimbabwean living in South Africa. And I would like to go back to Zimbabwe. Well, in that case, you might have a different set of concerns. But the tools are still costly. If you want Bibles, if you want to be able to move around, or maybe you say, no, 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 all I want is to support my family. Well, how much ministry will you do then? When will you preach? Sooner or later, your family has to eat. And if they're going to eat, well, I'll do like Paul. Wonderful. We'll talk about that in a moment. But those things have to be grappled with. 
Number two, missionaries from wealthier nations tend to have higher expectations. If a woman grows up accustomed to indoor plumbing, washing machines, and hospitals, she will probably find it very difficult to move to a society without shops, jobs, or security. Even if she is devoted to the Lord Jesus, even if she is eager to give her life for missions, the human spirit tends to have a kind of cultural elasticity. Like a rubber band, it can only stretch so far. And the time that we're born in largely controls how far we can stretch. If you were born in the time of King David and you were a young lady, you might be used to walking to the well to get your water. But if you were born in Israel in 1983, the year my wife was born, you might find it very difficult to walk to the well and come back with a 15 or 20 liter jug of water. It might be overwhelming to you or discouraging to you. Now we can all stretch to a certain point, but after that, it is simply too taxing to continue on. Now God can do wonderful things and yes, we can be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and Jesus is with us to the end of the age. But we also have hundreds of years of church history And we can see what happens when missionaries leave a more developed country to come to a less developed country. Consistently, they quit before they finish five years. Why? Do they they worship Satan? They said, ah, I was trying to trick everyone. Now they've found it. I worship Satan. I'm going to quit. No, they don't worship Satan. Do you think they still love Jesus when they quit after five years or three years or two years? They still love Jesus, but they did not anticipate how difficult it would be to learn to speak Mongolian. They did not understand how difficult it would be to try to eat borscht. Do you know what borscht is? Cabbage soup in Russia. I ate it for the first time when I went to Russia in 1995. And it was bitter and I didn't like it. But I said to myself, I'm going to eat every bite of this. I'm not going to let them see that I'm some proud American. And I ate it down. But that's because probably I was 18. If you're 17 then. If you're a little bit older, say 27, and you've got three children, and the kids say, Mommy, I can't eat this. And you're thinking, oh, this isn't very good. I'm not used to this. Where's my sadza? Please, can I just get some tichando? You might have a difficult time with that. We can all stretch to a certain point. But we can all reach a point where we can't stretch. And the wealth of the last 200 years has produced cultural expectations at our tables, in our closets, and most expensively, in our security. I say our security because if you come from a developed nation, then you have some form of retirement, some form of pension. But pensions can be very expensive. Now, if you have a job in the developed world, then they'll help fund that. And you just walk along and never realize it until you're 70 and then you take it out. But if you come to be a missionary, who's going to pay the pension? You say, well, you just trust God and walk by faith. All right. But if you were born in 1960 
and all the people around you had pensions, and you marry a girl who's born in 1963, she's going to expect there's a pension. And she's going to think constantly, what happens if I get to be 68 and he gets cancer? And those things can be overwhelming. But I think they're overwhelming for all sides. Can you imagine a Shona woman happily moving from Matabele land to Shanghai, China? Can you imagine where she can never again cook sadza? It's rice, breakfast, morning, night. She cannot speak the language. She cannot read. She has to take her three children and start school there, but they can't go to school because the government schools are evil, so she's going to have to homeschool them. She's going to have to homeschool them in Shanghai, China. Where do you get the books? Where do you get the paper? How do you travel? How do you just buy a loaf of bread? Do you think a Shona woman would say, this is really nice after six months? The cultural elasticity can only stretch so far. Now, everyone is born differently and everyone is made differently. And we need to know the way we are built and maximize the gifting that God has given us. But the problem is that some people don't even factor that in. And what I'm trying to say here under point number two is think about it because the world has changed. Expectations are very different and we often give up on our work and sometimes give up on our faith because our expectations weren't met. Number three, complexity. Countries with greater wealth have generally sent out the most missionaries. The missionary movement has largely been European and American citizens moving around the world to poorer cultures. They're often given a large enough amount of support that they can carry on the most significant parts of their standard of living in the country they move to. We'll talk about this more next week. But missionaries, when they move to Cameroon, tend to raise enough support in America so that when they move to Cameroon, Cameroon, they can still have butter and cheese. Even if the average Cameroonian can't have, because every American can have butter and cheese, but now we have a problem. What happens when you have a Cameroonian over in your home and they see the? And now the people you're trying to lead to Jesus and say, I've given up everything so that you can come to Jesus. They're looking at you saying, you're richer than our chiefs. And we really want that stuff. And you're telling me you've made a sacrifice? I don't think you've made a sacrifice. You're like the king. And the woman's thinking, nobody appreciates me. I just want to go home. Years ago when we lived in Elam, my wife was overwhelmed with termites and broken bones in our children. Homeschooling as a young mother pregnant again with another baby and still going to all of the services in the week, I think it was two or three, and then teaching the children and trying to start a choir. And she was feeling overwhelmed and discouraged. So at a church event, one of the women, she greeted one of the women and one of the women said to her, how are you doing? And so instead of saying, 
She said, Oh, Mani, Nicarele. I'm so tired. And the woman said, Why? What do you do? And she wasn't meaning to be insulting, but her question was, Why would you be tired? You're a rich white person. You have money. What's there to be tired for if you have money? All you do is sit on your couch all day. What, what else could you do? And my wife shared that with me as such a great discouragement that it, all, it tempted her to want to quit. Like quit being a missionary. Those are the kind of things that are going to happen to you all the time. If you come from a more developed place, you're going to have to prepare yourself up front saying, I've got to get ready for that. And if you come from a less developed place, you're going to have to prepare. Wait a minute. There's going to be challenges as well. When I come in, I'm not going to be able to have some of the things that they had or have or enjoy. So these clashes between lifestyles make it very complex. So... If someone in Zimbabwe wants to move to South Africa as a missionary, how much money should the Zimbabwean churches give to him? Years ago, a number of pastors wrote a paper here in South Africa, and I read it. And they said, this was probably 10 years ago or more. They said, it is unjust and wrong to give a pastor less than 45,000 rand a month. Because you can't expect him to live on that. 45,000. And I was thinking, the people to whom I minister to get 1,500 and 1,700 and 2,200. And if they've got a good job, 4,000. Or like the one man, Papa Pile, I think he was getting six, 6,000. So there's two worlds there. Well, what if a Zimbabwean says, God has called me to Johannesburg. God's called you to Johannesburg. How much money should the Zimbabwean churches give you? Should they give you all 45,000? Or should they give you 5,000 and you live in a squatter camp and then you try to evangelize the rich people driving their BMWs and their Mercedes? And you say to the man in the BMW, I'd like to do a Bible study with you. Oh, okay. Ah, my house isn't ready. Oh, come over to my shack. These are the complexities that make it difficult when we ask the question, what does it mean to send a missionary? Let me give you now five practical ideas for raising support. We'll have more next week when we talk about missions and money, but five practical ideas. Right. Number one, missionaries should develop Christian relationships and friendships. Friendships can only be formed with transparency, communication, honesty, time, so missionaries should be putting themselves in positions where they can have open conversations with churches and, mission, and churches and Christians who might be interested in supporting them. They should find churches from whom they desire support and ask if they can visit for a week or more. But missionaries must always guard themselves. This is letter C, number one letter C against the snare of befriending others only for what they can get from them. Godly men strive for real piety, speaking the truth in their hearts. Falseness and gamesmanship must have no place in a missionary's demeanor. 
We don't want missionaries. Those people will not have the power of God in them when they preach. They won't know how to pray down God's blessing because they're grieving the spirit every day with the way they think and feel and love money and love comfort. Letter D, a week or longer is a good time to stay with the church. During that time, missionaries should look for chances to serve, pray, and form friendships. Letter E, reading good books consistently and evangelizing constantly will bear fruit in these kinds of settings because what church would not be happy to support a young man if they saw he's a reader, he's an evangelist? Those kinds of things don't usually come with dishonest, lazy thief. So what do we do? If a missionary needs support, he should find those churches with which he most agrees and he should see if he can set up a meeting for a week or two weeks or a month. Asking if he can stay in one of the church members' homes or near them so that he can get to know them and then explain what church planting endeavor he is going to do. Number two, churches should support fewer missionaries with more support rather than many missionaries with small support. Now, again, I'm speaking to multiple audiences here. In America, among the Baptists, it is common for a Baptist church to have a missionary wall at the back of their church. And they might have 20 or 30 or 50 or 80 missionary pictures on their wall. And then they'll have a large map of the world and they'll have a dot for every country where they have a missionary that they support. But if you're a church that makes 15,000 rand a week and you give, let's say, 3,000, that's a big number. Let's say you give 3,000 rand a week to your missionaries, that's 12,000 rand a month. If you've got 30 missionaries and you give them 12,000 rand a month, how much for each missionary? 400. Is it 400? 400 rand per missionary. Well, if they're going to be a missionary who's going to have to have vehicles and airfare and government documents, that's, that 400 rand a month doesn't even pay for the government documents I have to have. On average, I have to pay 700 rand per month for government documents for the privilege of living in this country. So what, missionary, what churches should think is, let's reduce it. And they feel unspiritual when they reduce it, and they shouldn't feel that way. That's a foolish way to think. They should cut back the pictures and have four. When we left to become missionaries, I had nine churches supporting us. And at that time, as best I could tell, the average missionary had 35 to 40 churches. I had nine churches that were supporting us. Now we have 12. And recently someone asked me, why do you have 12 churches? My answer is because I couldn't get three. It would be better to have three churches that get together and say, we are going to take 30% each of your salary and we are going to send you there. And when you come back to visit us, you stay with each of us for one month and then you get back to work. Churches should support fewer missionaries 
and have higher support per missionary. Number three, pastors should contact churches that might be willing to meet a godly missionary. So if you are a pastor or if you are a church member, encourage your pastor to contact other pastors that he knows and say, hey, we've got this sharp young man. We've got this Alex Kamutimbe. He's a sharp, gifted man. His father loved the Lord. We've watched him now for several months. We are willing to support him. We're going to try to give him 4,000 rand a month. I'm wondering, would you guys pray about taking Alex and, and would you consider giving him 3,000 or 4,000 a month to try to get this kid to plant churches? Now, a pastor could do that kind of job with much more effectiveness in a small amount of time, relatively speaking. I know that pastors are very busy. And I know that pastors have many jobs that they have to do. But the, the, the reason this job should be done by pastors is with a small amount of work, they can bring a great benefit to the missionary. And then the missionary in his return, number four, what can he do? The missionary should write a budget that is as frugal as possible. Do you know the word frugal? Frugal. It means you don't spend very much money. So when we were getting ready to come over to South Africa, I was urged to get $4,000 a month. That was in 2004 before I'd even married Amy. And I said, I, I can't possibly, I can't possibly use that. I'm not doing that. And I wrote up a budget that was much, much, much smaller than that. And I gave it to the churches and said, would you each give 10%? And they looked at the budget and said that you can't live on that. Americans can't live on that. Africans live on it. This was before I was married in the rubber band. We can do this. And sure enough, I came over single for a year and it worked just fine. Now, they did give me enough money to buy a Bucky, which was a terrible Bucky, a Ford. Ugh, it's the worst Bucky ever. But as far as my monthly salary, I thought this is working just great. I don't need any more than that. My point is, missionaries, their response, if the pastor says, why am I doing the job of the missionary? Answer is, because a good missionary will be willing to cut his salary. How would you like to support a man who says, yeah, how much would you offer me? We'll give you 15,000 rand a month. Would you be willing to work? All right, can you make it 8,000? Who would not want to hire a man who when you offer him 10,000 rand a month, he says, let me think about it. All right, I'm asking 6,000. No, wait, we just said 10. 6,000 is my final offer or I'm not working for you. Well, that's what I'm telling missionaries to do. And there are ways they can do that. If this manuscript ever becomes published, I'll try to list a number of them. There are many things. Let her be. The first thing they can do is look at what's called ministry funds because American missionaries are required to have a budget item called ministry. And many American missionaries have a ministry budget that is larger than their salary. But here's the problem. If you come over to Libya and you've got a ministry budget of $2,000 a month, 
money that you're spending on machines and buildings and salaries for the people working for you. Let me ask, when you're done planting that church, is a Libyan man, a Libyan Christian, going to be able to take over the same job you're doing with $2,000? That's not a salary. That's extra on top of his salary that he can build buildings with. Let me ask you in Malawi. You go to Malawi and you have your salary and that's where you buy your butter and your cheese. But then on top of your salary, you got two or three or 4,000 US dollars every month to buy ministry items. You can't use that for your kids' basketball. You can't use that for your shirts. But you can use that money to say, why don't we just build a really big building? Can a Malawian do that? What did we learn in the first section of this class? The point behind church missions is planting reproducible churches. If it's not reproducible, then it's not fitting the definition. But if someone says, but we have to have this money in order to do the ministry, then it's not the kind of ministry they were doing in the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, they were doing ministries that could be reproduced without European and American cash. I'm not saying we don't need any money or any gifts. I'm saying if it's not reproducible, you should cut it from your budget. That's the first thing American missionaries or other missionaries could do to cut to save time. And if you are on a missions committee where you are considering taking on a missionary for support, let's say you are at um, Podunk Baptist Church in Georgia and in comes Rob Sparkles. Says, hey, I want to go to the Canary Islands. I'm trying to raise $6,000 a month to go to the Canary Islands. Wonderful. You need $6,000. Can I just ask you how much of that is ministry? Oh, well, uh, $2,400, that's ministry. Do you have any idea how much money per month the average Canarian is making? Do you think 2400 is really going to help you do Book of Acts missions? Well, you don't understand. We're going over there to build a hospital. Did Paul the Apostle go over to a place to build a hospital? No. My point is we need to find out what the money is being spent on. And churches need to ask those hard questions. How much money are you asking for? How much money do you want? What are you going to do with that money? Letter C. Missionaries can also look for ways to save money on health care, clothing, and mission boards. I'm required to have health care as a missionary. But the health care plan that I was originally told to take was about 600 US dollars a month. Now I'm required to have one. I have to buy this or else I'm not allowed to come into the country. But you know what happened? Rather than taking the one that they said, well, all the missionaries are taking this. I went around and asked some different people. And then I went on the internet because it was 2004 and there was an internet back then. And I just typed in healthcare for missionaries. And I found one that was under $200 a month for me and my wife and all my children. So right there, I saved $400 per month that I don't have to say to any church. Now, if you're a pastor and you want to support a missionary... If the missionary shows, look, I'm just telling you, pastor, I am trying to save your money. You say you want to give me 3,000 rand a month. Thank you so much. I'm just letting you know, I'm doing my best to cut corners. So right here, I could have paid six. I cut it down to two. 
And I'm going to cut anywhere I can. I'm going to cut. Because I really want to save money and I want to get over there. And I'm not trying to look like a show-off. Number five. Missionaries should plan for self-support. If they are from a culture where Christianity has not developed strongly. Paul and William Carey supported themselves. These missionaries may be able to find churches that could give them enough capital to start a business. This is the kind of scenario that would face many African church planters. So if you're from Malawi or if you're from the Congo or if you're from Zim or if you're from South Africa and you say, I wanna, I, I, I'd like to do this. I want to be a missionary. Like Elam Baptist Church. Elam Baptist Church does not make enough money to send Harry Chauke and his wife into Mozambique. Because they would have to pay for a car or something like that. They would have to pay for transport. They would have to pay for a lot of things. They would have to pay for all the visas and the government documents. But maybe Elam Baptist Church could say, Harry, now that we know you're going to go, we're going to save up for the next year and a half. And we are going to do our best to buy you a generator and a mill so you can have a job. We're going to buy you a brick-making machine. So you can make bricks there. We're going to buy you this and this and this. These tools to help you. If a man is from a poorer culture, he should be especially clear about what he is doing with the money so that no one can accuse him of being in this profession for personal gain. 1 Timothy 3.2 and 1 Timothy 6.10. There is a difference here between American missionaries and African missionaries. No American pastor that I know of thinks that I am here for the money because my salary is so much lower than theirs. And if I wanted more money, I would go home. But if you are from a village in Zim where you have no jobs and you come to South Africa and you're in Johannesburg making, say, 2200 a month, and then the xenophobic attacks happened in 2008. And you're pushed into a, into a refugee camp. And then some Baptists come and evangelize at you and give you free food, free Bibles, free blankets, free clothes. You might start to realize, I lost my job. I can't work anymore because I'm trapped in a refugee camp. Can't go home because there's no jobs there. These people are giving free stuff. Oh, they're opening a Bible college? This happened to us with 11 students. A number of those students came here, and you know what we did for them? Not only did we make their, their tuition basically free, people from their church paid it, they didn't pay. But on top of that, Paul and I went through the town getting jobs for them. So that one of the men ended up getting waste more, ended up getting a job here in Lewis Treecart, where he was making more money than he was making in Johannesburg. Now, that factor never came into my mind. When I left America to come here. But it does enter someone else's mind. So much so that one of our graduates, when I said, let me try to help you to get a job or to try to help you get support with South African churches. He said, I'm actually afraid of that because I've seen money change people. And I think money might change me too. 